For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear one woman's story about facing life and taking on new challenges after breast cancer. Meet Katia Cardinal, a singer from Nicaragua with a strong international following. And Feeding Our Future asks, can the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona address the root causes of hunger? Those stories are coming to you next on Arizona Spotlight. It's the diagnosis that no one ever wants to receive, but an estimated 1.3 million people must face every day. Breast cancer is the most prevalent cancer in the world, striking women and men of every age and race. Today, Terry Kuti is a two-time cancer survivor and the founder of Our Mission, the Deep Sea Journey Foundation, a nonprofit that provides education and resources for others to make informed decisions about breast reconstruction after a mastectomy. Her journey hasn't been an easy one. Next, we'll hear a conversation between Terry Kuti and her cancer surgeon, Michelle Lay, about their experience together and their friendship. Michelle Lay begins. I remember when we met, around the time we met, you had a lot of strong emotions, fear, I feel like maybe a little anger and shock. You had a recurrence of your cancer. I don't know that I necessarily, without looking at someone's chart, remember exactly how it happened, but I remember that we were talking about cancer in two sides. Right. And that one had been there before. I would concur with the anger more than anything because I felt like I was rude to you that day, but I didn't intend to be. I was angry, I think, with the cancer again because I had seen you once before for some minor surgery and when I talked to the radiologist and she was pretty sure it was cancer again she says I think we need to consider already setting you up to see uh, a breast surgeon and I said I want to go to Michelle Lay so the day that I walked into your office I was angry and I just remember that you turned the doorknob and walked in and I didn't even say, hello, how are you doing? I looked at you with angry, steely eyes, and I said, do I have cancer again? And you said, yeah. No one ever teaches you how to tell someone they have cancer. Mm-hmm. As of this weekend, I've been in practice for 10 years, and I never really spent a lot of time thinking about how to do it, but I've always been very direct with people. We started off this conversation with, like, hi, you have cancer, and it was very high emotion discussion. Right. And it took us several visits actually to get past all that high emotion. Yeah. And actually one of the times that we kind of got past it is we ran into each other at a restaurant. We hugged it out. Yes, we did. (laughs) Yes, it was on Easter. You were with your family. I was with mine. And I I couldn't believe that you crossed over those cactus (laughs) and came and gave me a hug. But, you know, I mean, that first day that, I, you know, you opened the door and I was angry with the cancer, as I said. What I'm doing today as an educator for people who are faced with mastectomy and, and educating them about breast reconstruction, you 
were the charter member in that club (laughs) because even though that was a rough day, that was also the day that you told me about deep flat breast reconstruction and also my other options for reconstruction. And I I didn't even have that on my mind. And um, that's why I do what I'm doing today, really, Dr. Lay, because um, I was so fortunate that I had a doctor like you that that told me about my options from the very get-go. And through my research and, and looking at studies, we know that less than 23% of women are given that opportunity that I was. I credit you really for giving me that information and, and for feeling so fortunate about that. If I can just give a plug for what breast surgeons do, I think that's what's so hard about what we do is that you have to be completely um, at peace with yourself or put everything that's going on in your life aside mm-hmm. because I could have easily gotten mad back at you because there was a lot of emotion going on that day. Like I can still feel it today and what was it like four years ago? And I have had other interactions with patients like that that didn't go so well. I had one family that got really angry at me um, because I got upset during the interaction. And I think as physicians, we're expected to not react when patients are upset. Mm -hmm. And that's not always easy to do, to just keep plowing through and pouring out the information. And sometimes, you know, we have to stop and realize, okay, the patient's not listening, and we have to stop and say, come back another day when you can pay attention. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we also don't have a lot of time to get all that information out there. And there's a lot that... um, physicians are expected to do in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. We also know that it's just a very stressful time. Mm-hmm. And we usually don't interpret patients' anger at being angry at us. Mm-hmm. We usually are able to say, you know what, they're just mad. Yeah, and for me, that I was, and that was, um, that was my defense mechanism. I was more or less fighting the cancer. I thought, damn it, you're not going to win this again. That's right. And I... Literally, I think I drew my sword this time. And I've always said that I've been a bit in Joan of Arc mode since I've had it the second time. And it's actually made me calmer about this diagnosis after I processed everything and could move forward. The first time I had cancer in 2002, I was like, tell me what to do. I'll do it. And I'm going to move on. And I don't want to hear about it anymore. This time... I'm slaying the dragon. You will not win. I'm going to know everything I can about you, and I'm going to help others know about it too and help them, you know, fight their fight. So, Terry, after you uh, researched about free flap, was there anything that scared you about doing it? The length of time in the operating room, because you told me the first day that it was between a 10- and 12-hour surgery, and you don't really know until you have that consult with your plastic surgeon, and they don't always know. They can give you an estimate of how long it's going to be. But I think living with a mastectomy for seven months, I didn't do well with that. I got up every morning, and the psychological uh, detriment to me was just palpable every day. I mean, in those seven months, um, I always have a hard time talking about this because it was devastating. People would call me up for social events, and um, I was actually turning them down, which is so unlike me, <laughs> as you can imagine. So I I think that, you know, living 
with that psychological detriment probably um, overshadowed some of the fear that I had. But I'm also, I'm so curious about um, things. And I even watched a full, not a full because they couldn't, they couldn't record the whole thing. But I wanted to know what those doctors were going to do to my, to my body and exactly where they were going to cut. I didn't really have any aesthetic expectations. I just wanted my breasts back. I just wanted to feel whole again. I wanted my feminine shape back. Um, I didn't do well with it. There's women who are, they own the flat and fabulous and I admire them and I value their courage and their choice, but it didn't work for me. There's a solution for every woman. Like there are some people who have no problem having no breasts. And I've had patients who are devastated till the day they get reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And everywhere in between, it's very interesting. And it's, I don't know that anybody knows that about themselves until they face it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that they necessarily know that they could even articulate it until they face it. No. I think we have a new bond now, too. Yes, we do. I was diagnosed with breast cancer this year. So now we have a different level of friendship that we're both survivors. Yes, exactly. And um, and I went the whole through the whole reconstruction thing, yeah. too. So. And when I found that out... Um, in late June, early July, you had just really had just been back to work a few weeks. And when you told me that, I just, I just reached out and touched your arm and I said, well, how are you doing? <laughs> that was Terry Couty talking with her friend, cancer surgeon, Michelle Lay. You can find a link to Couty's foundation and her Deep Sea, that's D-I-E-P, capital C, Deep Sea Journey blog on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. October 22nd is National Breast Reconstruction Awareness Day. Latin America has a strong tradition of popular singer-composers. This week, one of the most famous performers in Nicaragua is spending time in Arizona, where she'll be a guest this weekend at Tucson Meet Yourself. Katya Cardinal began her career more than three decades ago, along with her brother Salvador. The duo enjoyed great success until his death in 2010 from a rare blood disease. Now, Katya Cardinal continues their musical tradition, with her daughter Nina as a frequent collaborator, playing guitar and singing. Tony Paniagua spoke to Cardinal about her international following, one that extends from her native Central America to Europe and the United States. And I think the American audience is so open and so mixed with all kinds of religions and races and different uh, way of thinking that our music is, it was perfect. We sang in Spanish, we translated the meaning of the songs and some people came and they said, I don't care about the lyrics. I mean, it's just the harmonies and the melody and the feeling that we can perceive, perceive, is that a word? <laughs> uh, from your hearts. When you and your brother established the duo, you called it Duo Guardabarranco, which I just had to look up in the dictionary myself, yeah. and it is the national bird of Nicaragua. And that sort of exemplifies what you were hoping to achieve, the ecology, the peace, the beauty, the wonder of your country? Yeah, the Guardabarranco, uh, it means the, the savior or the, as you say, gamekeeper. 
for the forest. The keeper, the guardian. The keeper of, of the cliffs. Mm-hmm. So this little bird, she built their nests in the cliffs, not uh, on the branches on top of the trees. So the other animals are aware of danger. And then you cannot put them in a jail like a parrot or, or something else or a nightingale or something. And even we were so young because I started when I was 16 and my brother was 19. Uh, that was, what, 36 years ago. I think we were very clear about what we wanted to sing about. Nicaragua was living a very uh, important... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, because we had a revolution in the 80s and everything was political. And we never wanted to be part of any party. Since your brother passed away, you've kept the legacy going. And now you have four children. One of them happens to be a daughter who travels with you to many places. What would you like to say about those children and their musical talents? Nina, who was the eldest, uh, she plays the guitar since she was five. She started learning by herself and with different teachers eight years ago. I had to start working with other guitar players because my brother was very sick. One day I, I had no guitar player and she came up. She was playing with a pop girl musician in Nicaragua. Sometimes when you have the thing so close to your eyes, you cannot see it. And then I saw her playing and I said, what? <laughs> She's a professional guitar player. So she came and, and we had some rehearsals. Then we started touring. We went to Europe. Actually, she started recording with me when she was 12 years old. And for people who don't speak Spanish, what would you like them to take away from the music? Well, the the thing that it's different, a little bit different from the duo is because now I'm singing my own songs. When we sang together, 98% of the songs were written by my brother. So now I'm, I'm including my own vision as a woman. And, and that makes a little different the, the whole repertoire. But I also talk about women's rights and the feeling of uh, motherhood. And the fact of being minority when we talk about rights and respect Um, So that is something, uh, an extra element. One of the interesting chapters you've had, you lived in Norway for a few years. You said you worked on seven albums there, and one of them got gold. gold (laughs) That was quite crazy. In Norway, in Spanish, right? Yeah. Okay. We met a Norwegian singer-songwriter in Nicaragua, and then he invited us to translate one of his songs. Uh, And it was a hit in Nicaragua because Salvador wrote beautiful lyrics talking about Nicaragua with the Norwegian melody. And then I happened to marry the Norwegian guy who was living in Nicaragua, working for the Peace Corps. And we moved to Norway. And uh, I called this bro- this friend, the singer-songwriter. I had no idea he was like Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen of Norway. He's the, the biggest uh, rock star in Norway. And I told him, well, I'm a housewife now and I'm living in Norway. And he said, no way. So he gave me all the his contacts and this record label made a deal with me for two albums and we released the album and 10 days later they called me it's sold out you are number 16 in the top 40 in Norway so it was incredible because I come from Nicaragua and then my album was on top of U2 or Ricky Martin I go to Norway almost every year uh, and it's a chapter a very exotic chapter in my life very nice thank you very much thank you Katia Cardenal for joining us gracias thank you Katia and Nina Cardinal are scheduled to perform together at a free concert Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock at Tucson Meet Yourself on the stage in front of City Hall. We have a link for more details on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org along with an exclusive recording.
Next, the fourth episode in a nine-part series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. This series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. One in five people in southern Arizona experience food insecurity. The Community Food Bank is a nonprofit that feeds the lines of hungry people in five counties. But while it serves up to 63,000 meals a day, it also invests in programs aimed at shortening the line. Laura Markowitz brings us the story. In the parking lot of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona, Marty Delsid sits in her car. She's too nervous to get out. She's sure people will stare at her and think, Oh, look at there's a deadbeat, there's a cheater, and look at now there's someone else that's trying to scam the system. Until recently, Delsid had been middle class with a good job. I was a respiratory therapist and had been working as a manager of a sleep study lab. Then, the accident. I fell while I was out skating and I fractured my back. My doctor said, well, you're probably not going to be able to go back to work, but disability took two years. Her savings ran out. She had to sell her house. She and her 10-year-old son moved in with her mom. They lived off her mother's social security check, which was around $800 a month. We did all the right things. We cooked at home, rice and beans, tortillas, things that are inexpensive. But there did come a time where we went through all our pantry and there was just nothing left in there. And no money left. So, the food bank. She braces for humiliation and gets out of the car. They greeted me and said, hi, how are you doing? Pointed me to the line I needed to go in. The line for emergency food boxes. We got a pound of beans, a pound of rice, some cans of vegetables, a loaf of bread. As Dulcid starts to leave, the volunteer stops her. She goes, oh, you know, by the way, we're having a garden class uh, meeting right now. If you're interested in gardening, the garden's right around the corner, and you could go in and just see if it interests you at all. And I go, well, I don't know anything about gardening. We'll get back to Marty Delsid. First, you need to know the Community Food Bank does what you'd expect. It distributes food. It also distributes compost and seeds and gardening expertise. All right, guys, make sure you're leaving the pick plenty of space. We don't want anybody hit with the pick, OK? Chris Lowen is the Farm Operations Coordinator at Las Milpitas de Cottonwood Community Farm. We're in the southwest Santa Cruz neighborhood. It's just west of I-10 and south of 29th. This six-acre farm belongs to the Community Food Bank. Our gardeners at Milpitas are eating an increased number of fruits and vegetables. There are 60 families in all. 98% of our gardeners are reducing their grocery bills because of the food that they're producing here. There are no supermarkets in this neighborhood. As you come into the garden, there's a handwritten sign. It says, fresh eggs, call Panchita. We have uh, 40 chickens and two roosters. That's Panchita Cruz. She's the one selling the eggs. Her family grows vegetables in one of the plots here. Zucchini, 
different kinds of tomatoes, jalapeno, squash. Give a person a squash she eats for a day. Teach her how to grow squash, and she and her family can eat for a lifetime. And the food bank also hopes she can make some extra cash selling the surplus. I'm trying to sell the eggs every Thursday. Uh, I go to the farmer's markets. The community food bank runs three weekly farmer's markets. In case you're wondering, garden classes, farms, and farmer's markets are not typical for food banks. The food bank is a leader nationally in moving food banks away from simply providing food to addressing food insecurity. Diane Austin is director of the University of Arizona School of Anthropology. Her students conduct the annual survey of food bank clients who ask for emergency food boxes. Nearly half of those who complete the survey are picking the boxes up not once or twice a year, but every single month. Realize that a lot of this isn't about emergency. Then you really have to take a different focus. Feeding people is a coping strategy. That's Michael McDonald, CEO of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. That doesn't get to the underlying causes of food insecurity or hunger, which is about income. What else is missing? It's like, yes, here's your handout. And there's not a lot of dignity in that. There's not a lot of opportunity. There's not a lot of hope. Two years ago, the food bank decided its programs to shorten the line are as important as its programs to feed the line. So along with gardens and farmers markets, the food bank runs a job training program at Caridad Community Kitchen, and it has a microloan program, and the Las Milpitas to Cottonwood Community Farm. These programs take significant investment. They only impact a small fraction of the people who need hunger relief. For example, the annual budget for Las Milpitas is $300,000. The food bank could just give Panchita Cruz and the other Las Milpitas families 5,000 bucks each to buy squash at the store. Is this the best investment of resources? What does success mean for us? Robert Ojeda is the food bank's chief program officer. For more than a decade, he's been the one at the food bank heading up the shorten the line programs. This is about more trucks, more buildings, bringing more food? Or is it about how do we work with people so they actually do for themselves, so they actually transform their communities themselves? He says that's what's happening at Las Milpitas. There's a group of about 15 community leaders that helps us at the farm. And one of them, she's actually now the president of her neighborhood association. Since we started with the garden, I, I'm the president. Panchita Cruz became president of the Southwest Santa Cruz Neighborhood Association, and she says it's because of the garden. She met neighbors while they tended their plots. They complained to one another about cars speeding down Cottonwood Lane. It's the main road in the neighborhood. It's where kids wait for the school bus. People who work two jobs have to walk home in the dark because there are no streetlights. When Cruz realized other neighbors were concerned about the same things, she decided to run for president so she could do something about it. Cuando yo empecé como presidenta, no sabía nada. <laughs> I don't know nothing. The food bank taught her how to lead meetings and how to organize. 
The Food Bank runs a series of programs that actually teach these kinds of skills to community activists. Training trainers, training mentors, and training and supporting leaders. Cruz learned how to navigate the city and county bureaucracies, and the Food Bank taught her how to apply for a neighborhood reinvestment grant. That grant came through, $250,000 for upgrades to Cottonwood Lane. Solar lights, speed bumps, and walking paths. Robert Ojeda says this is a huge success, even though it has nothing to do directly with hunger relief. It's not about food necessarily, but it's about transforming people's lives in other ways. Robert Ojeda says when people who need the food bank start to see themselves as partners instead of clients, they're more likely to seize opportunities and move themselves out of poverty. Maybe they go back to school or they find a better job. The work I do is very personal to me because my mom, she was a teacher that worked really, really hard. I had four kids and could barely make it. I know that there were times where she would actually go and ask neighbors or family members for money or food. Every time I think about that, I think about how humiliating it must have been for her, a hardworking person. Partnering with somebody brings that dignity that I think is so important to me because I don't want people to have to go through those painful experiences. Remember Marty Delsid? She went back to pick up a food box and was invited to check out a gardening class. And I go, well, I don't know anything about gardening. She ended up taking three. She made friends there and her depression lifted. She became a vegan, lost 50 pounds, got her diabetes under control. Now she's one of those volunteers who invite food bank clients to check out a gardening class. Hi, right now we're having a class on container gardening. Would you care to join us? Marty became a member of our board of directors at the food bank. Delsid sits at the boardroom table with a former congressman, business executives, and university professors. She has a voice and a vote that shapes the food bank's policies. She advocates for people like her, people the food bank calls clients, but hopes one day to call partners. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org. And tune in next week for Episode 5 that asks the question, how will climate change affect our local food system? You taste before you pick. You can get bitter, chalky, drying. You do not want to pick that one. You can get apple-flavored, nutty, boom. There's so, lunch. There's lunch, okay? <laughs> Harvesting the Desert, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.